we are in the process of going through looking at the Word of God. And we're using the book uh, God's Big Picture. Although I decided a long time ago that book was made for like eight Sunday school times with, with the uh, video, which is about 10 to 15 minutes, add on to uh, a few discussion questions. And that wasn't going to be enough. As well as, as I know this course was meant to be a course of increasing your knowledge of the scriptures, that we need to spend time thinking about not just sections, but what's in the sections. Uh, the book does a great job of showing you the forest. One of my desires is to look at some of the trees and see what makes the forest what it is. So we spent, instead of just one section on the prophesied kingdom, we're spending two. One for the major prophets, major only because they wrote more than the other prophets. One for the minor prophets because they wrote less. Uh, is not as difficult and demanding to read. Uh, and their material, though, is just as inspired, just as infallible, just as inerrant as the major prophets and the rest of the word. Now, I especially also wanted to spend time on the minor prophets because it has been my observation over years of ministry that Christians don't read them. I mean, they think major prophets, this is where we get all the good stuff. Let's read it. And when you get to the minor prophets, it's kind of like boring. <laughs> now, I, I go against that because if you wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and you need a short story to read, you read the minor prophets. They can be read in half an hour, 45 minutes. Zechariah may take you a little bit longer, but you can read it in a short period of time and at least begin to capture some of what it has to say. Also, it is part of it because it is the word of God. It is worth our time reviewing and getting to know them. Uh, putting them in not only their time, but also what they have to say. And you will find that some of the, the most encouraging passages come from the minor prophets. We'll see that as we go through today. I would remind you where we've come from. This is We're talking about the kingdom of God, which is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we've been using that kind of a phrase as we go through because that's what the book says. So we looked at the pattern of the kingdom, the uh, paradise creation and the garden, the, per the uh, perverted kingdom, as I like to put it, where sin entered. The promised kingdom where the covenant is given to Abraham in seed form and that needs to be growing and uh, multiplying as you go through the time span. We looked at the partial kingdom, that is where you have Abraham's extended family and God's rule through the kings. And finally you have now the prophetic kingdom, which means major and minor prophets. Let's, uh, and let me just remind you why we study the prophets. They explain why 
the exile occurred as the Lord God uh, has, uh, remains true to his covenant. They show the Lord's love and patience with his people. Even though they are rebellious, he is long in mercy. He is gracious to them. Even over hundreds of years in which they have rebelled against him. And even in a kingdom that was set up against him. That's the division. They build a case for the anointed one to come. We saw that with some of the major prophets, but you'll see it in the minor prophets. They provided precious promises to God's people in a variety of settings, which I hope to have you look at today. Uh, the definition of a prophet we took from Deuteronomy 18, and that is one who speaks on behalf of God. Moses was a prophet, and the people asked, uh, he, God took Moses and he multiplied his gift into 70 other people. And there was one who was not out there when it was multiplied and he was in the city and they were complaining that, well, there's one in the city doing it. And Moses basically said to them, I wish that you were all prophets. People who tell the story of God. People who remind one another of the covenant and what that pertains to and what that's within. And so you see the purpose of the prophets. You know, you can teach an old dog new tricks. It just takes a lot longer. I'm still learning how to use PowerPoint. So if I have to turn around to look over here because I can't read it up there and I got my contacts in. Now, purpose of the prophet, they're, they're foretelling. The Hebrew word is nabi. That's one who announces or declares crucial information. Just like evangelon, the Greek word for, for good news, for gospel, really means one who tells you the good news. We are evangelists in one way or the other. We tell people good news. The prophets were telling the people crucial information, which always went back to the covenant. After uh, the Exodus, when they were given a covenant on Mount Sinai, they always went back and said, thus says the Lord. And they would repeat something that came from the, the covenant of uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy. They would remind them of what that was. They were also foretelling, that is a word, Hazah, and Rohe, which means they were seers or visionaries. In fact, early on, they weren't called prophets. They were called seers. Um, it was a reminder that they were seeing things that others could not see, and therefore they predicted events that would take place. Uh, one of the things with Isaiah is how people divide up the book. And this has been within the last 200 years. Up until then, everyone thought there was one author, Isaiah. But the things he wrote about were things that happened hundreds of years after he was a prophet. And even Babylon coming and taking Jerusalem, when Babylon was nothing. I mean, it was a little backwater town with no significance. And they said, well, obviously, he couldn't have seen that. Therefore, it had to be written after it happened so that they then... When they wrote it, 
they made it look as if he had said it beforehand. You kind of scratch your head and go, you mean the eternal God who sees all things at one time cannot by his spirit give to his prophets what's going to happen 200 years down the road? I mean, that's nothing to him. But that's one of the ways he's, Isaiah has been broken. These are people, to some limited degree, get to see what's coming up. And therefore, they also can see the Messiah, the anointed one, the king priest who is coming that uh, the people need to know. One of the things that the New Testament tells us, and this is a key passage for today, is from First Peter. And here I'm going to piggyback on John. And we never talked about what we're talking about. Isn't this amazing? We, can, we come up with the same verses. Concerning this salvation, 1 Peter 1, verse 10. And this salvation has to do with that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Concerning the salvation, the prophets, and by that he means minor and major prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Notice the two words. They searched... And inquired. To search is to dig around. Inquire is to think about it. So as the Spirit was leading them in their writing, they're, they're digging around what they're saying. And they're thinking, what does this mean? inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. There they are. They're looking for one of two things, a person or a time. And you will see that like in Daniel, Daniel got to see both the person and the time. He was given the vision of the 70 weeks that's a time frame that led up to the Messiah who would put an end to all of the sacrifices. So he saw both the time and the purpose. Some, like Micah, which we'll see, only saw the time or only saw the purpose. But they were searching for that and they were looking. Uh, so it's, it's not that they were Ottomans with it, it's just somehow listening for the Spirit to have them write words down. They were doing the hard work of thinking about it. And when they wrote, thinking what they had to say. So that in all of this, they too were seeking what others would seek from their writing. Seeking of the, the, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And normally, normally we talk about this as a passion week. But 
You know, the sufferings of Christ from, from the moment he was conceived into the moment of his, in fact, into the empty tomb. What is, what's it like? You're the creator of the world. You've been outside of that creation. You've been eternal. You've been infinite, immutable. And all of a sudden you enter into that world. And where at one time there was no time for you. Now you have days and hours and minutes. And your mother says, Jesus, it's time to come in for supper. Put down the ball glove and come. Okay? He's time. Well, he wouldn't said it because he was without sin. But he was, oh, mom, what do you mean? The sun's not gone down yet. Okay? <laughs> but you, you have this idea, you see. That's part of his suffering. There he has people whom he created because God is in the midst of every human being being created. They're the ones who turn around and bl blaspheming him, ridiculing him, beating on him. His own hometown, who knew him well, wanted to throw him off a cliff. See, that's part of his sufferings. It intensifies in that last week, in those three to four days before he goes to the cross. But that's part of it. And the suffering of having to lay in a tomb dead for those three days waiting for the resurrection. That's part of it. That's his sufferings. And it was revealed to them they're serving not themselves, but you. Now Peter's talking to his first century audience, but he's also talking to us. You imagine these guys wrote the 8th century, that's almost 2,800 years ago, and they were writing for you. Now, they don't know your name. Someday when you're up in, the, in heaven and you're walking on the streets of gold, you're going to see this guy come and you're going to stick out your hand and say, Hi, my name's, and you put your name in there. What's your name? And he's going to say, Malachi. Malachi, where do where did where do I know you? Said, didn't you read my book? <laughs> Come on. But they have been doing this for your sake. In things that we now have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know, when they were writing, even these minor prophets, angels were saying, boy, I'd like to see what they're doing. Wouldn't that be neat? Come on, Gabriel, give me a view. And said, no, they longed to look. And it was, maybe the sense is, but they couldn't. But they longed to look. And yet we, as 20th, 21st century Christians, look at these books and say, are they worth my time? Can I really get anything out of these minor prophets? All the meantime, up in heaven, the angels are going, did you see that? Did you read that? Huh? So, that's why you read them. Uh, they declare the summary, 
is they declare, it's on your paper, they declare how the people of God are to live in light of the covenant God provided. Always they go back to that covenant. That's so crucial. How then shall we live in the light of what God has done for us and who we are? Time of ministry. Just a little bit of background that I, again, I'm learning. I couldn't figure out how to make this and put it on, a, on the screen. So you got to put up with my chicken scratch. You have 920, which is about the time that Solomon died, and we, we went through what's happened. Rehoboam wasn't listening uh, to Jeroboam and the others, and what they ended up doing was Rehoboam ruined it, and the two countries split. You have Judah, which is in the south. Basically, Judah and Benjamin, Jerusalem down south. And you have Israel, which is the north. And that's basically from Jerusalem up. Ten tribes here, two tribes here. And it became a civil war. However, in this case, the south were the good guys and the north were the bad guys. You know I grew up north of the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> okay? But you have the ten tribes. They go for about 200 years before Assyria, which is the land that's up north and east of them, comes in and takes them over. 200 years, 14 kings. I think it was four uh, regimes. It was, there was nothing good ever happened out of Israel. It was just a horrible time. In fact, most of the really bad stuff came out of Israel. And all of a sudden, they take everybody out of the land. They bring in new people because that's the way Assyria would lessen the opportunity for a rebellion by the people. You just get rid of them. Or you bring in so many other people, they don't have the background. You have Judah, which goes for, what, another 400 years. But there's two different times. There's Babylon, which had overtaken Assyria, comes in 586 and basically overruns it, but sets up a puppet government. But that puppet government spends 20 years disobeying their master, the, the Babylonians. And so they have to come back in and they destroy the temple. I mean, they finally get, they, they finally just say, enough of this. I'm not putting up with what you people are doing. And they come in and they destroy it. And when the temple is destroyed, the presence of God leaves that, the temple. And it's a sign through that Ezekiel gives to us that God has, in, a, in essence, in some ways, given up on Judah and his people. Not quite. It says he comes out of the temple and he goes up on the Mount of Olives and he kind of sits there. And this caused great consternation for those who are in Assyria, but especially for those who have been exiled to Babylon. 
Because their, their hope was the temple, the temple, the temple. As long as we got the temple, God is with us. As long as the ark is around, we are safe. And when the temple and everything is destroyed, they're going, what? Who are we? Where are we? What, what do we have? And all of a sudden when they come back, and the people from all across, and they come back about 526, somewhere in there, maybe 516. Uh, dates in the Bible are somewhat fluctuating. But about then, they come back, and they, what's called the exile, and the return of the exile, which becomes as, as important in their history as the exodus. You have them brought back, but only a few. They're about seven, 8,000 out of all the Jews that were living in what have, would have been that whole area. Not much. But then they begin to rebuild. And it is the minor prophets, this whole section here, and it's one of the reasons why the, you don't have the minor prophets in size of writing. But in the period in which they wrote, except Obadiah. And I'm still trying to figure out, how did Obadiah sneak in there when he is down here in about the uh, 6th century? But what do I know? I'm only a country preacher. Come on. What do I know? I'm still doing research on that. But you have 8th century, primarily in the North Kingdom, because God kept telling his people, Shape up, or you're going to get shipped out. You have these three, Nahum, Habakkuk. It's a great, some of the Hebrew names are so good. Habakkuk. Sounds like you're going to get sick. Habakkuk and Zephaniah in the 7th century, which again would be back here in and Judah in that area. And finally you have the post-exilic in the 6th century of Obadiah. Well, Obadiah is here in the 7th century. Haggai, Zechariah, and that good Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> or better known as Malachi. I love that. Malachi, that's so great. <laughs> Malachi. Uh, you see, I, you know, just for the names, you ought to know these. You ought to memorize them. <laughs> Malachi. So this is what this is the history, and it's important to see that to put them in their perspective of where, where to whom they're writing, and at what time they're writing. You do not want to put Jonah down here in the exile. His story would make no sense. So you you put him in that place now. What we're going to take a look at is we're going to go through in the hour that we have left, maybe, and we're going to take a look at each one of them and kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of, of what they're talking about and their theme, and maybe look at a passage or two. Some of the passages I picked were ones that was your homework uh, to take a look and to that. So we start in the 8th century. 
You have a decline, both of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And you start out with probably the earliest of the minor prophets, and that is Hosea. Uh, his theme is he depicts the unfaithfulness of Israel, the northern kingdom, using a number of images of family and nature. Yet even all of this is not to exhaust God's redeeming love. Uh, this is a constant theme. It's a constant theme we need for our own lives. You failed me. You have not obeyed the commandments, the covenant. You have broken faith with me, but yet I'm willing to invite you to come back. I want you to come back. So if you have a Bible, either open or electronically zoom in on it to the third chapter of Hosea. Again, one of those short chapters, but whoa, is this great? Hosea has been told by the Lord to go, go marry a woman who is also a whore and to have children. And the name of the children are names that talk about the destruction of the land. She leaves him. And she goes out and runs around and goes back to her former trade. And then you get to the third chapter of Hosea. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. That's his opinion of the northern kingdom. You are adulteresses because you love another man, not me. And the image of marriage, wife, husband is a, a major image of the scriptures as to God and his people. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. It's uh, one of the parts of the uh, worship of those other gods. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. 15 shekels in that was basically the price of a slave. Bought her for that. I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. And he's you know, basically laying down the law. This is how you are to act from now on. I have bought you. You are mine. I've paid the redeeming price for you. Now, you are to live with me and you are not to go back to the ways in which you did. And then they, the prophet adds this, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod of, or, house of God, or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come to fear to the, in the fear of the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. You know, basically, Hosea in the third is prophesying this. He writes, what, about 755, about 35, 40 years before this. And he says, you're going to be taken out of the land. But I will bring you back. And you will be a people who are seeking the Lord their God, 
David their king. And remember, David has been dead for hundreds of years already. So he must be talking about another David that is yet to come. And that uh, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's a reminder to us that it is the goodness of God that brings us to him when we see how good he is to us despite how bad we are. That's Romans 2. It's the kindness of God that draws us to him. You think Paul just picked that up out of the air? It's that passage that he was thinking about when he wrote that. This is what God does. And so Hosea is saying, this is coming, but something new will come even more. Then you go to Hosea 6. I like this passage because it's misused so many times. Verse 1, come, let us return to the Lord. You'll notice there's a quotation mark in it. For he has torn us that we, he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. For two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord for his going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that waters the earth. You know, this sounds really positive, right? It sounds like something that we do in, in, in different groups, they take this passage and say, well, this is, this is about the God wanting to revive us. And they forget it's the people who are rebellious who are saying this. Why, only if we turn around, God will deliver us. And then you have verse 4. This is a different person speaking. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here's God saying, well, you... you you make some good words, but you're not going to keep those words. In fact, you violate them before they're even out of your mouth. You don't want to return to me. And because of that, I'm going to get rid of you. Now, he does put in a caveat, uh, as he does elsewhere, that there's a possibility of them coming back later. But their repentance is a false repentance. And he says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings. You remember somebody who said that? His name is Jesus. He looked at the Pharisees. He says, don't you remember? He wants steadfast love, not sacrifice. He wants the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Because they figured as long as we have the sacrifices of burnt offerings and we're following all those regulations, God has to love us. He said, no. Where's the love? Where's the steadfast? Where's the covenant love that I want? And Jesus was using this passage, maybe not quoting it directly, but at least, at least pointing to it. 
to say to the Pharisees, you're not, you know, you, you don't really love God. Later on he'll say, if you loved Father, you'd love me. And since you don't love me, you don't love the Father. See what you pick up from the minor prophets? You pick up old, the New Testament. Okay, that's one. Joel. Joel of the time uh, is unwritten because he doesn't commit himself to any of the kings, which is usually the way in which they tell what time it was, the, the, the rule of so-and-so and who's he, what's it. Because remember, B.C. is our way of talking about it. It wasn't there, you know. They didn't open up their calendar and say, hey, it's 826 B.C. <laughs> it wasn't there. But Joel, and so Joel can be anywhere from, uh, some people point it to this time period, and some say it's the 5th the, uh, or 4th century B.C., and again, usually it's put in a later date because Joel talks about things that happened after he died, after the 8th century B.C. And again, they say, well, obviously he couldn't know about it. Obviously he couldn't have written it. Somebody had to write it later and then make it sound as if an 8th century prophet said it. Let's give the authors and let's give the compilers of the Bible a little bit more common sense than trying to put some pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Uh, that's the problem with some of the modern scholarship. But Joel is there who talks to both nations and God's people that they're going to experience the day of the Lord. Yet to the repentant community this day holds the hope of restoration in God's presence. To a non-repentant community, things are going to be bad. But notice what Joel does. He does, doesn't talk to God's people here. He talks to the nations. Again, a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant. You shall be a blessing to the nations. Don't keep it in within yourself. And you also will speak to the nations of what they need. So he is, uh, he, he's, he's one of those who is going beyond just, just Israel. Joel 2, 12 to 14. He has been talking about the day of the Lord, which is commonly a day in which God comes to visit his people and to see how they're doing. Uh, like a general who comes to inspect the troops. And he comes not only to have uh, the troops prayed before him so that they all salute him and he looks really grand and glorious in his uniform with all the medals on him. But he t goes to the barracks and he checks to make sure the beds are made the right way, the rifles are up. Uh, he checks to make sure the books are right and they haven't been doctored. He checks to make sure everything is working well. That's the day of the Lord. Jesus would use a very similar thing when he talked about the day of your visitation. That's the day of the Lord that comes. And it's not something that happens way into the future, which is the way it's sometimes used in our own day and age. It's something that happens day in and day out. Or 
when there are difficult times. Uh, I've known congregations that are just dying on the vine. Uh, they have no life. They have no goal. They have no idea of evangelism. They have no idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden they slip down to the point where they're no, no longer able to keep the doors open. And people want to have a big celebration. Well, let's celebrate the 200 years of ministry. And I'm going, what? This is the day of the Lord. That a church in any area is closing is a day of the Lord. He's come, he's inspected, he's, he's judged them for what and who they are. So the call of in verse 12 is, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. And then he goes on. This is just the, the prophet saying, rend your heart, tear it open. Let it be changed by God and come to him and should make the outward signs of an inward transformation that's taking place. Wailing, fasting, sackcloth, ashes. He's calling them to that. And the, again, the question, who knows? He's a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Where have you heard that? It was given at the covenant. It was given in the Psalms. It's a reminder again and again. This is the God whom you serve. You turn, he will relent. And he may leave a blessing behind him. Now that's not like the Easter bunny who kind of hops in and leaves a few eggs around. It's like maybe he'll come and the blessing will be you turn around and your nation will be blessed. Your people will be blessed. Because in this period, the longer it went, the weaker the nation became and the, the more difficult it was for people to live. There was famine. There was a loss of crops and all that went on. And Joel is basically saying, you know, maybe. New heart, new life, new blessings. Almost sounds like Ezekiel, but Ezekiel was written much later. Almost sounds like the New Testament. Right? I've told you before, I think nothing in the New Testament is original. It is simply taking the Old Testament and going deeper with what the message is. That's, that's it. Okay? Joel 2, 28 to 29. Oh, a favorite. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your son and, all you, and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants to the, in those days I will pour out my spirit. 120 people, male and female, 
in an upper room on the day of Pentecost and the Spirit drops in on them. <laughs> he blows in. And when he blows in, they're changed. And all of a sudden, a fisherman who was afraid of a 14-year-old girl and denied his Savior preaches before thousands this Christ whom you crucified. He is Lord of all. See, that's what Joel was prophesying for. Your old men will dream dreams. Well, I'll tell you, old men do dream dreams. But it's even better when young women and young men dream dreams. They will be given a power to go and do beyond anything else. And it's, one of, it's the reason why Peter picks up on this passage and uses it in his preaching. Okay, just marching right along. Two down, ten to go. Here we have whoever that is. No, here we have Amos, who is uh, anywhere between 793 to 739 B.C. Again, it's tough to, to pin these people down. They didn't have uh, calendars. They didn't have computers that would put the date on the bottom of their writing. You know, they didn't have all that. So you kind of figure, that's eh, within here. But it's in the 8th century. He's talking about the universal justice of God, which is for both Israel and for the nations. And again, the northern kingdom thought, we are the people of God. We are the people of God. We are descendants of Abraham. The covenant with Abraham is immutable. God would never violate that covenant. And because we are his people, God will not judge us. Well, Amos comes and says, wrong. Uh, he is going to judge you. And the first part of his book is all about the judgments on the Israel's neighbors. And it goes around in a circular around neighbors. And then about chapter 2, he pinpoints the southern kingdom. And because he is in the north, he goes for the northern kingdom for Israel. Uh, in Amos 4, Uh, he talks about the oracle of doom. And he uses some, well, graphic language. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. That's not a polite phrase. He did not know Andrew Carnegie or he didn't know uh, Mart, uh, Norman Vincent Peale. He didn't know how to make friends and influence people. He said, you ladies who get all puffed up and get all this stuff and you want the finest couches and you want the finest stuff and you're just living ungodly lives. You cows of Bashan. I don't think he got invited to too many state dinners. Lord has sworn by his holiness, verse 2, and that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. What a phrase. It, it is metaphorical. But you, can you see God taking a woman's face and putting a hook in her nose, saying, you're coming with me. <laughs> That's the idea. That's the picture that he wants to. 
Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O peoples of Israel. Now, to Bethel and Gilgal were the places in which they developed worship sites. And yet worship was always meant to be since the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So, build your own place of worship. Do the things that are similar to what's happening in Jerusalem, but do whatever you want. And am I going to bless that? No, not at all. Um, verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. That's like having July and August without any rain or June and July without any rain. And you know what's going to happen to the crops. They're going to wither, especially come August when the, the heat is the worst. And he's saying, I'll just make all of your crops wither. You won't have anything to eat. Oh, isn't this a God that loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? No, this is, this is a God whose holiness demands his justice and a universal justice across the world. Uh, and then there's that phrase uh, where he says, prepare to meet your God. You ever see people, evangelists, out on the streets that carry those signs? Prepare to meet your God. Well, this is where it came from. Except they use a King James. Prepare to meet thy God. It sounds better when it's in the King James. Uh, that's where they got it. Then Amos 7. The inescapable judgment. Where he gives the visions of swarming locusts and of judgment by fire. And I've set up a plumb line and I'm... I'm ascertaining everything in accordance with this plumb line. I mean, who's a good carpenter? You want the plumb line to be perfect and everything fits that. He never grades on a curve. He never changes it so it looks like what he wants is the plumb line. And he talks about his warning. And in all of this, there is a phrase that he keeps using of that it shall not be, it shall not be. I will rise up against. And in verse 4, he talks about, you did not return to me, you did not return to me, you did not return to me. Again and again, he's driving home the point. You're in trouble. Well, isn't this wonderful information for a Sunday afternoon? Just doesn't make you, doesn't make you just thrilled. See, but this is reality. And this is the reality of your neighbor's or family, and others who do not know Christ. And uh, I, I made fun of the guy who's on the corner with, with the sign, prepare to meet your God. But that's a message that has to be out there because they have to meet him. Well, three down, nine to go. We go to Jonah. Jonah. 
Jonah's about 760 B.C. We can be fairly certain it's around there. And the theme is the Lord has boundless compassion, not merely for Israel, but even for pagans. And I don't think I have to tell you the whole story of Jonah. It's just Jonah rebelled because God was sending them to their enemies. And where in the psalmist and in the covenant it was said, do good to your enemies, uh, feed them, help them, work with them. Jonah says, I'm not going. You know, and he gets to spend three days in the belly of a huge fish. Well, it's not, it never says a whale. It just says a big fish. So the Veggie Tales got it right when it said Jonah, Jonah and a big fish. Maybe the only time Veggie Tales ever got it right. <laughs> he spit up and he, he walks into, imagine this. He walks into Nineveh having been in the belly of a big fish for three days. Seaweed, all sorts of stuff all over him. And, you know, go, who's this? And he begins to preach. And the Lord had already prepared their heart to the place where they come back and they repent. And the Lord relents on his message of doom. Well, this excited the prophet no end. He goes, yes! Now, actually, the next day he goes up on the hill and he says, Lord, I told you this was going to happen. It's why I ran. You are going to be good to your enemies. And the Lord shows him by a tree that grows up that gives him shade in the desert. And then a worm that comes and eats the tree. And he's left out in the sun. Shows him, can I not have pity on who I want to have pity? This is the missionary book. But it is also a reminder to us that the Lord can have pity on anybody, even our worst enemy. The Lord can have pity on ISIS. In fact, he is. And, and the, uh, the Muslims. You know, there are more Muslims coming to Christ than it could be people coming to Christ in, in the United States. It's just growing. But that's the Lord being the Lord of Jonah. And we look at him and say, oh, can you save ISIS? Would you save ISIS? And we go, no, 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 they're our enemies. We're supposed to kill them. Yeah. You see how close this is to our own age. Micah, about 720 B.C. We're getting closer and closer to this time right here. The theme is the Lord scatters his people due to judgment. He is also the shepherd king who has compassion, gathering, protecting, forgiving them because of his covenant. Micah 6. In which you have the indictment of the Lord. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend. And this is his indictment. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. You know, Remind yourself, I took you out of slavery. 
I brought you through the wilderness by feeding and watering you for 40 years. Your clothing didn't wear out. You had the same pair of sandals that when you left Egypt. I have given you the land. I gave you kings and prophets. I gave you everything. I took you when you were nothing and I made you a great empire. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? How have I caused you to want to rebel from me? And of course, the, the answer is in no way. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. But this is what the Lord requires of you. Verse down to uh, verse 8. He told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's exactly the opposite of what they were doing. By this time, when you read the history of the northern kingdom, they weren't doing justice. The kings were, uh, were filtering from the people. They were filling up their own treasuries. They were keeping food from them. They had no love uh, they didn't love kindness. They were harsh with their people. Uh, they would tax them more and more because they needed more money to do what they wanted to do. And they didn't walk humbly with their God. And he's saying, this is what I expect of you. In, in essence, in one way, this is a summary of the Old Test of, of the commandments and the covenant. And they weren't doing any of it. Any of it. And at the same time, when you get to the seventh chapter, and he talks about in verse 18 to 20 when he is done with all of that he's written, he goes, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast off all our sins into the depths of the earth sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What a great image. Uh, in, in my tradition where I came from during our worship service we had a time of, of confession. We read a written prayer that was in the bulletin and it was for the whole congregation but it was also kind of spark your own private confession. So we'd have a period of silence. And the whole idea was, from what you have read, where have you sinned against God? And we'd give a kind of a protracted time of silence for them to confess their sins. And then we would end with what we called an assurance of pardon. This is one of my favorites. He'll have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Kind of sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? He, you cast all of our sins in the depths of the sea. And then I would add this. And as the old preacher said, God has no fishing hook to bring him back up. What a great assurance of your pardon. He puts him in the deepest part of the sea. And you get to the, you know, you know how you go down in the sea and the pressure gets more and more and more to the place where any submarine we have right now can't withstand that pressure and yet there's still more. 
He takes your sin and it goes way down to the place where the pressure is the greatest, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it together. And that's what God does with your sins as you confess them. Oh, I love that image. The only place you find it is Micah 7. See how you need the minor prophets. Okay, that's the 8th century. Except again, Obadiah comes out here. And when we get to Obadiah, I'm going to have trouble getting back up here to get back. 7th century. This is where you have the power of Assyria and it begins to demise and Babylon begins to grow. And you have some prophets that speak to, uh, by now, it's only to Judah because Israel is no longer. So, you have Zephaniah. Wonderful Zephaniah. It's within the reign of Josiah. Josiah is a reforming king. He is one of the great illustrations of a godly king in the Old Testament history. He is, even as a young boy, I think he, he took the throne when he was about eight years old. He had some people who helped him. But later on when he got into his 20s, he realized the covenant of God. Remember the kings, what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to take and write out for themselves a copy of the covenant. Possibly just Deuteronomy, but maybe Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they were to read it consistently over and over again because it told them how to, how to lead the people. But somewhere in there, Josiah came to the realization they need to repent and rebuild and restore what has been taken away from them. And Zephaniah comes up to them and talks to them about the day of the Lord. That's, again, another theme of his. And that is, that day has two faces. It can either be the face of judgment or of the face of um, blessing. And so you have Zephaniah 3, which I know was in this book. I saw it before. It's in the Old Testament. There it is, Zephaniah. Got it. You were hiding from me, weren't you? <laughs> Zephaniah 3. And, and again, uh, one of the beautiful passages. Sing aloud in verse 13, 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. O shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared Away your enemies, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. That's a result of Josiah's reforms. On that day it shall be to, said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let, your hands, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Have you heard that before? Yeah, it's repeated. A mighty one to save. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He will gather those of you who born for the festival so that you will no longer suffer report, reproach. For those who are tired of not having the feast, who mourn for them, who cry out that they have them, they will come. Behold, at all times I deal with your oppressors and I will save 
the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, say the Lord. You see the reforms going on. They're just going, oh man, we are going to enter a day of great blessing, a day of wonderful time. And verse 17, the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Just his love with you will keep your heart still. But the re that word rejoice, he will rejoice over you with gladness. That word means to dance. The picture is, God comes into the midst of his people and he begins to dance all around him. That's, that's hard for us Presbyterians to imagine. God dancing? Come on. And for some Baptists, it's even more difficult because they say, you can't dance. But picture the people, and God is dancing around them, rejoicing in who they are. What a great image for those who come to him and are renewed and continue in his steadfast love. He rejoices over you. Think of think some Sunday morning, God dancing around the aisles, up and down and up and down. That ought to make you smile. <laughs> Even after a very busy weekend, it ought to make you smile. You see? Because that's, that's who he is. Then you have Nahum. Nahum, which I know is in here. I saw it. Ah, there it is. Nahum is 120 years after Jonah. He comes to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, and tells them, you will be destroyed. The, you, uh, despite your past reprieve, despite what Jonah did in your midst, and you turned, and I relented, and I gave you a promise of there, you have turned back into your old ways, and because of that, you are going to be destroyed. 120 years. Seems like a long time. Go back 120 years, it, it seems like it's about the turn of the century, 20th century. Seems like a long time, but it doesn't take too long for things like that to happen. That's why you keep watch, diligence, about how you are living for God and with God and what your congregation is doing and what the church in your area and what your church in the country is doing because it has a tendency to go downhill. And Assyria went downhill. And Nahum was sent to them to say, you had an opportunity and you blew it. You missed it. I sent you a prophet in whale spit or big fish spit and you missed it. You wouldn't keep it up. It's also a reminder to us that if we are going to do anything for God, it must be he who is working within us. Paul of Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to accomplish his will and his way. 
that's what uh, and Nahum is talking about. Goodness of the Lord is there, the judgment against Nineveh, but his people are going to be faithful. Verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Ju Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Assyria will not come back. And again, that image that Isaiah had. Uh, behold the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. He picks it up and uses it. Okay, and then the next prophet, who has a great name, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, but it's Habakkuk. It's, it's got that hard, guttural sound. 610 to 600 B.C. Uh, here is a, a prophet who is really searching his heart because he looks out around him and he sees what is happening, especially with Babylon about ready to come to Israel and do its dastardly work. And he is called to wait and trust in the Lord who works out his purposes for his glory and his name. Verses 1, 2 to 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly, uh, why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Again, he's looking at the period of uh, Judah, and especially Jerusalem, and the leadership that's gone downhill. But he also sees the army of the Babylons coming. And his question is, how can you allow an evil army like that that does so much harm and wickedness and evil when it takes over a city. How can you allow that to happen to your people? Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that, that's a question that comes up over and over again. And he, he asks it very vehemently. He's just saying, Lord, I can't understand. I don't understand your way. And basically what the Lord says in the second chapter, second verse, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for the coming of the enemy, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the people of God. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. He's talking about the people of Israel and the kings and their relationship with God and with one another. Here comes a phrase. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Paul picks this up, John, uh, James picks this up, and it becomes the bulwark statement of the Reformation. 
The just shall live by his faith. You look around and you wonder why are things happening the way they are? Wait and live and trust God in the midst of it. There's a message. That's, that's the key part. On the other side is, is his uh, response to what takes place. You have in Habakkuk 3 his prayer. And he ends his prayer. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. If everything fails, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. There is his final statement. Hmm. Kind of sounds like Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Not rejoice for the circumstances, but rejoice in the circumstances. Again, they're simply taking a minor prophet's idea and putting it into, into the New Testament. Then, oh, this is one of my favorite. You get uh, Obadiah, where you have the fall of Jerusalem and Judea. And Obadiah is the only one that's written to a foreign nation. He writes to Edom, who when Jerusalem was being sacked by the Babylon, sat on the hillside and laughed and clapped and said, yes, get them, kill them, destroy them. And Obadiah writes to them and basically says, well, God may be taking care of his people. You just wait. He's going to come around and come back to you because of the way you treated his people. We look at the injustice of how some in our day and age of how people and Christians especially are maligned. How in some colleges they won't allow a Christian group or a Christian group has to acquiesce to their idea of what a group ought to be. Or we have people, uh, parents and others, whose children are taken away from them because the state doesn't think that raising them up as children, as Christians is a good thing to do. Or you go into other countries where your mother and father are beheaded because of their faith. And you say, that's not right. And God says, You're, you know, but wait. I'm going to circle back and I'm going to take care of them one way or the other. Sometime. And you're back to Habakkuk. Wait and the righteous shall live by trust, faith in that. Okay? Haggai. My favorite book. One of my favorite books. Of course, I have 66 favorite books in the Bible. So, I, you know. God will restore his people as they build a new temple. Here you have the post exile, people coming home. You've had Ezekiel who has talked about this, uh, himself being in exile. You have Daniel who is given, uh, who was uh, reading Jeremiah and realized the 70 years were about up and he's saying it's time for us all to go home, but only a very small remnant out of all the Jews left and went back to their homeland. And uh, you have Ezra and Nehemiah who were sent, Ezra 
to build the temple, Nehemiah to build the walls, to give them a place of worship as well as a place of security. And you have three prophets, two prophets that are rise up at that time. Uh, Haggai is specific and it is, you can tell the dates by when he writes it. He says, second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month, which is like about August 29th, 520 B.C. Can't get much more specific than that. Uh, he is writing the, uh, with the theme of God will restore his people as they build the temple. Um, I've preached this book about three or four times because it goes into four nice sections, all about stewardship. The first section is where, through Haggai, the Lord says, Word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses where this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. You earn and he who wages, earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Clump, clump. <laughs> never enough clothes, never enough food, never enough water. But you live in these really extravagant homes. And the temple is not being built. That's why you were sent home to build the temple. Consider your ways. Boy, you really stick it to 21st century Americans who have all of the benefits of this country and can't even give 2% of their money to the church and to the mission of God. I think the, uh, the, the average that a Christian gives in this country is like 2.3% of their gross income. God's minimum is 10%. And then I have friends of mine who say, well, let's just up it from 23 to 4%. And I look at them and I said, that's 6% less than what they're supposed to give. Come on. This is what the people of God back then and here do. Well, we got to take care of ourselves. But when you take care of yourself, God doesn't take care of you. And he says, for the sake of the temple, consider your ways. Think about what's going on. Analyze. Search and inquire as to what's going on. And then in Haggai 2, 4-9, he says, be strong, O Josiah, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and he will, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord, later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
the book of Ezra, you have some of the some people who were there, really young kids, when they saw the temple in its former glory, and they're they're crying. What they're building is nothing like this temple that Solomon had. But the promise is, I will make it even better than Solomon's temple. Work. Come. Do what you're called to do. I will make it work. So, he is calling his people to, f to finish the temple. Why? Well, the temple never really receives the glory of God as it did with Solomon. You never read where the glory descended upon that new temple until the day a young couple bring their little child into the temple to have to give the sacrifice for her birth. And in her, his or her hands is God entering the temple. And he comes back when he's 12, probably other times we know of 12. And he comes back when he begins his ministry and he overturns the, the money changers' tables. This house is a house of prayer. It is my father's house. And God has entered into the temple. The glory of that person is far greater than the glory that was on Solomon's temple. You see how they're leading up to what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's doing? Then you have Zechariah. Zechariah's theme, he addresses the discouragement of the people and the slow progress. By a series of visions, he encourages them about the Lord being faithful to his promise and his covenant. Um, Zechariah 3, I think it was John Gray who talked about this, where the, uh, the high priest, Joshua the high priest, and that was really his name at that time, is one as if he were covered with soot. And the Lord cleanses him and says, okay, now I'm going to use you. You have Zechariah 9, 9 to 12, where you have the image of the king coming in on a donkey. And the gospel writers quote this as dealing with Jesus, come riding in, uh, the, the king of all, come riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Uh, there you have, this. these are visions that were meant to lift the people up and say, look, yeah, times are tough. It's difficult doing the work, but the work you do has a eternal outcome. And therefore, you should rejoice and work at it. That's a good message for about 10 minutes before we end and everyone's really tired because it's been a very long weekend. Then you have the last of the minor prophets, Malachi. Malachi is about 430 B.C. It's the later time. Uh, you know, Nehemiah came to build the wall and then he went back to his position as a cupbearer with the king, the emperor. But later he comes back and he finds that within about the 11 to 13 years that he's gone, the people have reverted back to the way they were before he came. And he gets really mad. I mean, he starts throwing people out of rooms. He starts destroying furniture. He's just berating them for what they are do, doing. 
because they are not following what they need to do to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the, the place. Well, along comes Malachi. And in a series of questions and answers, he calls them to get rid of jettison the dead orthodoxy and orthopraxy, renew the covenant, and understand that something great is going to be happening down the road. For instance, chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's his statement. But you say, how have you loved us? It's like they're saying, we see no evidence of your love, Lord. How do you love us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. It's a quote that Paul says a couple times, especially in Romans 9. I have laid waste this, his hill country and I left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That would be Edom. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. But your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. How do I love you? I'm going to take care of your enemies. You watch what I do. And there's a series of about eight to nine questions like this. He goes back and forth, calling them back to their faithfulness. Then there's this one in Malachi 2.17 that is used consistently during Advent. You've wearied the Lord with your works, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Where have you heard that in our day and age? We call good evil, and we call evil good. And... You ask, where's the God of justice? How come you aren't fixing things right away? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days, as in the days of old and as in former years. Uh, he talks about two people coming, a forerunner who's going to speak and awaken the people and the one who's come who is a refiner's fire. It's just as John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. He will bring fire upon you. It's the ministry of Jesus that sometimes we do not like to hear, but he was a firebrand. I mean, he called sin, sin. And he called people to deal with their sin. And that 
is simply echoing and obeying what Malachi said. See, again, nothing new in the New Testament. It's simply going deeper in what they already knew. And the worst part is there were people who knew it and heard it and would not respond to it and did not like it because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. It is present within the church in North America, I'd say Canada and Europe. Uh, it even can be present in our own lives if we're not careful. But this is where the minor prophets call you to wake up. Don't slough off. Don't just ex accept the idea that God is with you and everything's okay. You have a responsibility before God to deal with the sin that is within you and have him deal with it and take it away. See why I like the minor prophets? First of all, I can read them when I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I only got a half an hour before I know I'm going to go back to sleep. <laughs> but second, they speak to who we are and where we are and where our, our land is and where our world is. And they give encouragement as well as they put everything in perspective. God will judge. Nobody gets away with anything. Even if the FBI will not prosecute, nobody gets away with anything. Because everybody either deals with it or has been dealt with the cross. But they will find that he will deal with it. You just got to understand, he's an eternal being. So what's 50 years? If you're eternal, 50 years is nothing. 100 years is nothing. But he does have a timeline, the day of the Lord. So, next class, May 6th, we're going to talk about the New Testament, especially the Synoptic Gospels. And that's the next section. And I think you were given homework, right? Yeah, good. We're good to the. We're back to the good stuff. Instead of having a period of time without homework, you got stuff to do. Um, obviously, we're not going to be able to go through line by line or major sections of the synoptics, uh, but we'll give you a kind of an overview of it. We leave John on its own because uh, he writes with a different tenor then the synoptics, and then we'll get into Acts, and then we'll get into the epistles. Uh, slowly going through, and hopefully, you, you know, we've, you probably have done a lot of reading in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is so important. The New Testament is in the Old. The Old it illumines the New. And you can't understand the New without understanding the Old. And I would say some of the minor prophets. You really just don't know what's going on. Or you misinterpret what's going on. And that's even worse. Ignorance is one thing. Misinterpretation is another. So, uh, it'll be four weeks from today. That'll give you a long time to rest up from this weekend. Um, probably for, maybe we should have pushed it. We could have put it two weeks from today. But some of you are students. Yeah, final week. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Huh? What? Don't you want to sacrifice for the kingdom? Don't you want to suffer for Jesus? 
It doesn't work that way. Let's close with prayer. Well, Father, the best we could do today is give an overview. Maybe excite a little bit about those books to where we'd want to read them and study them and make them as significant to ourselves as other books we know. The best we could do is just to see a little of what they say about you, Lord Jesus, and which is they say about the Father and the Spirit as well. But I take and ask, O oh Lord, that what we have done, Holy Spirit, you would press it down within us. You would cement it into our thinking and into our hearts, that it would be there not only permanently, but especially when we need it the most, when we're like Habakkuk, seeing the evil that's around, and yet we can cry out, the just shall live by faith and wait for the actions of you. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for the perseverance of these people, and I pray that you would give us rest this afternoon and this evening that would help us be prepared to serve you tomorrow as well. And I ask it all in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen.